0: taking it
2: to a do-it-yourself level hello and welcome to another edition of the beyond zero show recorded in the studios of 3cr in melbourne syndicated around australia on the community radio network and podcast at bz.org.au and 3cr.org.au and your favorite podcasting app of course and don't forget you can follow us on twitter at bztechshow. tech show my name is michael steinall Today we have a change-up in the staff. Uh, Laura, you, who you haven't heard for the last couple of weeks, is actually spending her summer with a scarf, helping unemployed people and some seekers. So we actually lose her for the summer. However, we've uh, been gifted with Natalie Bucknell, who's just gone through the uh, panel training and is helping host today. and thanks for all the kind wishes of people, is still recovering, so she still can't sit or stand comfortably, but she expects to be back next week. So, hello, Natalie.
1: Hello, Mike.
2: Today we're welcoming Imogen Jubb to our conversation. Imogen is a communications specialist who provides climate change and sustainability advice to organisations including the Australian Conservation Foundation, the Bureau of Meteorology, CSIRO and Moreland Energy Foundation. She's published articles in The Age, SBS, Huffington Post and The Fifth States. Worked as a television presenter and scriptwriter for the ABC and co-authored reports with some of Australia's leading climate change scientists. She's an elected board member of Climate for Change and passionate about strategies that will work our way to a sustainable world. She's also battling a cold, so she apologises if she has to break off for a cough. Imogen, um, welcome to our show. you there? Yeah, thanks very much
0: for having me. It's
2: a pleasure. You're welcome. So Imogen is a newly installed national manager of the Zero Carbon Communities Program at BZE. Imogen, becoming a specialist communicator on climate change is not an obvious career path that high school leavers consider. Can you tell us a bit about your background in science communications and how you found this path?
0: Yeah, like, there's no way I considered becoming a climate change communicator when I was at high school. It wasn't on the horizon at all as a career option. I, I was really into science at school, and I, I liked both science and English a lot. Um, they were probably my favourite two subjects, and I, as a result I ended up choosing to study science arts at uni but I only finished the science component of that degree. And I was studying microbiology and um, biochemistry and but did a, plan, a, a course in ecology, Australian ecology. I ended up doing a field trip out to the Simpson Desert and fell in love with that kind of field work. And as a result, kind of worked as a consultant for an ecological consulting company and for national parks doing wildlife surveys. But I felt that people couldn't understand like things like habitat loss if they didn't understand what kind of creatures lived there in the first place. You know, so creatures like Fasca and Sugar Gliders and um, Squirrel Gliders, people don't even know that they really exist. So I ended up doing a course in science communication really because I cared about conservation. And that was a great course at Questacon and ANU, which is a science circus course. Um, and so I travelled around Australia performing to schools um, and other community groups um, in a really kind of theatrical way about science which was great fun, and also went to Indigenous communities. And I ended up working at a science centre in Adelaide and, and, and providing an education service to schools and communities around the state and particularly had a focus on Indigenous education as well. So I went to lots of remote communities and providing science, science workshops and teacher training, for example. Hmm. So all of that was a really great experience. And I ended up studying teaching and taught climate change at school and got a job with CSIRO and the Bureau of Meteorology as a climate change science communicator, which was fantastic because it was working with, you know, Australia's top scientists and some of the international top scientists, climate scientists, communicating climate science, particularly to government and industry, but also to the general public. So, Uh, yeah, quite an interesting career path. It
2: is, certainly. Um, And then um, I ended
0: up working with ACF, and I did the climate reality training with Al Gore, um, in 2009 and end up, ended up working with ACF in that climate reality program, program on a sort of advocacy space as well. Yep,
2: yeah. The the topic's actually very dear to me personally. Um, my background also is in science and, and nuclear physics degree and so on, so when I had my oh shit moment and, and realised how serious climate change was, I thought, fantastic, energy efficiency, all that. Within a year I realised, no, this is actually not a technical problem, it's a, it's a psychological problem and we've really failed, and I've spent the last nine years really trying to address the, this psychology, so hence having you on this, our science and technology program. So we, we're keen to get an overview from you about the field of climate communications. The recent State of the Climate report uh, released by the Bureau of Meteorology and CSIRO reaffirmed the effect that climate change is having now in Australia with the rising temperatures, rising sea levels, increases ocean temperatures, uh, increase in extreme weather events, droughts and heat waves, and yet Australia's CO2 emissions are still rising. So this is obviously a massive failure um, in, in climate communication uh, and the causes and the risks. So what do you think has gone wrong?
0: Well, I think there's a few factors to what's gone wrong um, to why we don't have great policy on climate action yet. Um, the biggest one is the influence of big, big lobbying groups who've used clever tactics and lots of money to create doubt about climate change and essentially to paralyse action on it. And they've been working very hard over the last couple of decades and had a lot of influence. I think it's very hard to kind of have enough capacity to kind of counteract those kind of lobbyists because they're really well resourced. So I don't know if that's necessarily a failure of communication. It's just a, a, a fact of the fact you know, that they've got better better capability than what climate scientists in particular do. But I think the other big issue is that it's framed as now as an ideological issue, which it is really not at all um, and that's been really hard to get bipartisan support for effective policy. So it really does come down to how people. Um, I, I think I entered this field, like, you know, probably around 2002, thinking that, you know, you provide people with information and that information will then inform them to be able to make better choices. Exactly, and yeah. that's a classic failing of, of this field, I guess, in that people aren't necessarily rational beings and that they don't make decisions based on that information, and particularly with climate change when the information is quite scary um, or or daunting or people feel powerless to be able to make those kind of... um, to to personally be able to make a change, um, I think that makes it quite a difficult issue. So I think really you need to provide a behaviour change package along with the science information, and that's quite tricky to do, particularly in a government organisation that doesn't feel like behaviour change is their remit. However if you can, if you think about a, a weather warning, for example, so if you know there's going to be a cyclone coming or a, you know some kind of fire or something that's going to be life threatening, it's really important that the information is packaged up with those behaviour change messages. so you know if there's a cyclone coming, you need to be able to take shelter in an appropriate form or you need to be able to work with the radio stations or with those other agencies that can provide provide a behaviour change message. So I think that's kind of where we're working towards with climate change and how do you empower people to feel like they have have an effective role to play in, in tackling the problem.
1: Um, Imogen, it's Natalie here. You've just talked about some of these issues that, you know, the, the ideology is sort of quite critical and, and that we need to put behaviour change... Package, you know, package up behaviour change in, in how we approach the issue going forward. Is, is there kind of a, a coherent current thinking on this psychology and politics of, of how to effectively do this going forward?
0: There's not heaps of evidence-based work on climate change communication. There is some, but there's not a lot. Um, um, I think personally I really feel like you need to be able to talk about this in a way that makes people feel impactful So when you feel empowered and that you're doing something about it to the best of your ability or the circumstances that you're in I think is when people don't get sort of caught up in the stress of it all and I think you really need to be able to encourage that for people. So I really try and create a message where the future is something that people have control over and they they can reclaim a way to take things forward in that future.
2: So Imogen, at the political level, what's the best... What level for us to tackle that is it? Is it that the state government, the federal government, or uh, local community levels? Um, is there a more effective way, or do we need to do all of them?
0: I think you need to do all of them, really. Um, so local government's great because it's a, a space where people can see the changes that they're making. So I think that's a really effective way to get involved, even even on a smaller scale with local community groups or you know, your street or your friends and family, like even working at that level is really important. But to get really effective policies, we need state governments and particularly federal governments on board. And so for that to happen, there needs to be enough people making enough noise for the politicians to feel like they can't ignore it. And I think it has has to be at all levels that people are working at. But, you know, not everyone can do everything. So people need to find the place that they feel like they can have the best impact in and work in that space.
1: I guess one area that we, we all can have some impact is, is at the personal level. I find, personally, it's quite a challenge to, to start those conversations about climate change with neighbours and, and friends, as you mentioned. Do you have a particular strategy for how do you go about starting these conversations about these really critical but sometimes depressing issues?
0: Yeah, I, I don't talk about it heaps on a day-to-day level with friends and family. Um, however, they all see what I'm doing, and so I'm kind of leading by example and they know they know what what I choose to spend my time and energy on, and that's a great way to help them feel empowered as well um, It's a difficult thing to talk about I'm also on the board of Climate for Change, which is an organization which is exists to help people have conversations on climate change So... um it facilitates those conversations, and really importantly, it makes time for them. So it's based on a Tupperware party model, where people go to a home, um, or, and someone's hosting it, and they, you know, they, they invite their friends and family along, and there's a good couple of hours to have a discussion on climate change, which is fantastic because people are a bit scared about it. The they don't necessarily have a lot of information about it. People people are aware of it, but they don't know the detail of it, and Um, it gives time to have that conversation and then also time to find out what will make people feel empowered to do something about it. So not just providing the information, but also providing what do you want to do about it? How can you guys support each other to make a change? Um, And that creates a bit of a a peer pressure and a peer environment for that, that, that group of people to feel safe and comfortable talking about climate change with each other, which is also really important. So it's a bit difficult to have a effective conversation on climate change over a cup of coffee because there's not necessarily enough time to get through it Um, or while you're picking up the kids from school, for example. Absolutely. Um, But I think the more people normalise having chats about climate change and particularly normalise chats about what they're doing about it, so uh, really solutions-focused, I think it will, will be a great step forward.
2: People probably prefer talking to you much more than me. I'm actually finding I'm having conversations even with people on the tram. In fact, I try not to take a tram trip without having that conversation <laughs> because i I think we need to counter that murdoch press and and as you say, we do need to normalize it but um probably makes me a um a frightening person to be with <laughs> um imogen there's a a concept called a wicked problem um problems that are uh so nasty because of their complexity, because there's not um, known solutions, because of the the range of variables, um, be it over time, be it over the the, the number of organisations involved and stuff. And climate change has is, is been described by Harvard professors as, as a super wicked problem. And added to that the, the fact that psychologists say that you couldn't design a problem that was better placed to be in humans' blind spot. Um have you, have you any comment on those things and uh, how you fight that or are you finding that is a real problem for you in the communications?
0: Yeah, I mean, it is really difficult, um, you know, because to fix climate change you don't have to just change one thing. You've kind of got to change all sorts of things at all sorts of levels from lifestyle to, you know, tricky global policies. Um and there is a bit of a movement towards talking about a climate emergency or a war against climate change or building a sort of warlike effort to mobilise resources. And I'm not sure I like this approach. Um, I don't have evidence around it. It's just a kind of personal feeling. Um, partly because I think it's confusing for people cognitively. So if you talk about a climate an, an emergency, I feel like you know you do nothing else until that that is resolved.
2: Which is you know, what we should be accident, doing. <laughs>
0: Yeah, we should be doing, but you, you kind of can't on climate change because, you know, one of the most effective things you can do to get solar panels is get solar panels potentially or lobby your, your parliamentarians. Um, but those things aren't a kind of, you do it right now, you do it with, you know, gusto until it's done. They're like an ongoing hmm. sort of solution that you have to kind of work on continually. And I think that's just tricky for people in their brains to, to get around that kind of concept. Because um, if you say an emergency, but the resultant action isn't behaving like you're in an emergency, it just confuses people. But, um, you know, it's, it's a bit recent, that thing. So um, I'm keen to see how it pans out and how people end up working on it. But I think the biggest kind of message that I find effective is the hope message. And it's too late to stop climate change completely, but it's not too late to avoid the worst consequences and... Again, every little action you take will make a difference to some extent and every action you don't make will also make a difference. So um, so I think it's about everyone finding the contribution that they can make and finding their part in the, the big puzzle of it all and making sure that everyone's playing the part that they can make in the circumstances that they find themselves in. So that's where I kind of try and put my efforts into. And I also, like psychologically, I'm quite interested in... Psychology for a safe climate. They provide some really great resources on climate change.
2: They do, um, don't they? Do great work.
0: And one of one of the the talks I had there was like pushing people to change is never very effective. People need to come to it in their own space, in their own time, in their own way. You know, telling someone they need to leave a different lifestyle is almost going to have a, a counter effect rather than a positive one. Um. And that's really tricky because it's an urgent problem. So when you've got this urgency and people who are aware of it and really passionate about it, exuding that kind of urgency and stress around it, that actually pushes people away. So trying to be really accepting of where other people are and accepting of um, giving them space and time to to get their own conclusion, to feel like that it's a, something that they can play a part in, is also quite important. But but very a very delicate balance, I guess, given the, the the seriousness
2: of the situation. If you've just joined us, we're talking to Imogen Jubb, climate communications specialist and the new national manager of BZE's zero carbon communities. Imogen, just following up on the, the message of hope you talked about there, we do try to maintain a positive attitude towards climate change strategies, but the science is now telling us that the effects of climate change are much worse and happening much faster than originally predicted. So how do you adapt your message or communications to this news?
0: Um, well, I guess it kind of, similar to what I said before about, you know, empowering people, and I think also working on climate change is actually a lot of fun, and I like to push that message as well. So getting involved in lifestyle choices that generally result in really great times and really good friendships and a really strong sense of purpose and community and resilience and meaning to your life is, um you know, it's kind of fantastic to be able to do this work because it's one of the most important things you could be doing. So I really like to talk about that. And, you know, I went, I went to a, a talk about, you know, kind of a bit of a support group for climate, for climate activists and they all talked about how much fun they have in the process. And even though it's difficult because they have these moments of despair or stress or anxiety about the future, um, they really do feel like they have purpose to their lives and that's really fantastic.
1: That sounds like a tremendous approach, Imogen, and certainly we have a lot of fun with our radio team here. Uh, so yeah. we can certainly identify with what you're saying. There's a lot of positives in uh, depending on the approach you take. So speaking about you bringing fun to your work, um, in your new role as the National Manager of Zero Carbon Communities, we'd love to hear a bit about that, that program and, and what it's up to. Can you tell us, please, a bit about it?
0: Well, so the Zero Carbon um community's work is um, done by Beyond Zero Emissions, and I guess the reports produced by BZE over the last couple of years demonstrate that it's technically feasible to get to zero carbon emissions in most sectors within 10 years in Australia. Um, however, there are lots and lots of barriers to making that change happen, both from a sort of behaviour change level or a policy level or, you know, a cost level or, you know, just, just that it's changed and that people are reluctant to change in the first place. Um, so my role will be to work with communities in Victoria to come up with a 10-year, 100% renewable energy transition strategy. And I'll be initially working with three communities in Victoria to help um, build that strategy and then also create a bit of a blueprint for other areas who are keen to, to follow that work.
1: So what, what already... are the communities that you're working with?
0: So at the moment, we're looking to work at C- uh, in Seymour, Nillenburg Shire, and potentially um, BORBOR as well, but I haven't yet met with the community. So I've only actually been in the role for about three days, so it's all very new to me still. Terrific. Um, (laughs) um, But there are a number of communities around Australia already taking these kinds of initiatives on. Um, For example, the city of Adelaide, Melbourne and Sydney are all working really hard to create great um, low emissions or zero emissions strategies. And Moorland, which is where I live, is also doing great work. Um, with the Melbourne Energy Foundation, for example. And there's also a whole range of regional communities, for example, Yakandanda and Manila and Denmark and WA. And then Byron, which is probably the most ambitious because it's trying to be zero carbon in 10 years' time within all sectors. So um, Australia could really have some great world record breakers amongst us if we get going on
1: these initiatives. So you mentioned about part of that task is to create a good blueprint that will help other communities i've come across the zero carbon practitioner network is that part of that role what what is what's going on with that
0: i don't know too much about that i think it was set up um in the paris cop um last year um so i think it's a global network of practitioners who are trying to work on zero carbon strategies but i haven't yet met with them or, or figured out what they do
2: you mentioned Moreland. Moreland Energy Foundation keeps going from strength to strength and was a really early starter in this field. What do you think of the base, is the basis of their success? Does it simply reflect the demographics there or a strong activism from a few people or what?
0: I was actually wondering this about this a few months ago. I wasn't really sure of the reason. For example, Darabin Council has a fairly similar demographic and yet Moreland's far ahead with its climate policies in comparison. I don't really know for sure, but I feel like the answer is that it actually comes down to a handful of people and perhaps even one particular person. So I've been doing a lot of sustainability work with my kids' childcare centre over the last 18 months or so. And we were recently awarded by the Moreland Council a sustainability award for our achievements. And this award was presented as the Mike Hill Sustainability Award. And I didn't know who Mike was, so I looked him up. And he was one of the first mayors of Moorland. And I think he was the first mayor actually. And I think a lot of the council's progressive actions on climate change can be attributed to his vision, including the establishment of methyl and positive charge, and as well as one of the, an early example of great sustainable development, which was the Westwick complex in Brunswick West. And Mike passed away a few months ago. But the councillors in particular were really passionate about speaking about how much respect they had for him and how much involvement he'd had in the community in setting up lots of sustainability initiatives. So I think it really demonstrates that a handful of people or even just one person can make a lot of difference to shape the culture and character of a region and make a difference on climate policy.
2: And, And again, following the Moreland theme, you apparently also recently ran as an independent candidate for the Moreland Shire elections. Why did you choose to do that?
0: There are a few reasons for it. I don't actually know where the idea came from. It kind of landed in my head somehow. And it's
2: I, the first I time you've run it. for election?
0: Yeah, it's the first time I've run for an election and the first time I've kind of been involved in any setting myself up as a political figure. Um, and there are a few factors, I think, and none of them on their own would have been enough to make me do it, but kind of stacking them together me over the edge. One of them was a women in environment leadership program that I've been working on and or participating in. And it this, this program kind of highlighted a lot of the barriers that women face, particularly in engaging in political experience. And one of the reasons that it's difficult is because there's not very many role models and people don't see people like themselves in that role and therefore don't feel like it's something that they can do. So I thought I could just demonstrate you know, an ordinary person um, with strong values, I guess, um, taking on that role. And that, that sparked heaps of conversations with people. And, you know, for example, I went to my physio and she was like, oh, yeah, I've always wanted to do something like that. And I think, you know, one of those, you know, seeing someone else do it makes it easier for someone else to take it on. So that was one reason to do it. Another reason was having another voice on climate change advocacy, um, in the role, So it wasn't necessarily just a Greens issue, but making it making it more more diversity about the kinds of people who care about it and want to see it in their election issue. And another one was the climate change advocacy that I've worked on, both at ACF and things like Climate for Change. Uh, it really encourages people to be active citizens in their democracy. And again, I kind of wanted to put my money where my mouth was and demonstrate how to do that. So I thought it would be good to help model that action for other people. And maybe the last reason was a bit of the rise of people like Trump and One Nation in the federal election. Um, I guess seeing people pushing fear as a tool for political persuasion and then having that sense of responsibility of like, if not me, who can be a voice for hope and for reason and for for providing a vision for a community that people actually want to evolve into. I think the first step to creating that future is to imagine it and then to talk about
2: it. So I thought I could take that role on as well. Okay. We've only got uh, less than a minute left. Can you just <laughs> quickly tell us um resources for these sort of things? Um the women in the environment in particular. Would people just search that by Google?
0: So yeah, the women in environment leadership in action, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. And psychology, so for safe... for psychology,
1: um,
2: for psychology for a safe
0: climate. Psychology for a safe
2: is, is climate is dot org.
0: Um I think it's, again, if you search
2: psychology for safe climate... Yeah, you'll find that. that. Um, climate, climate for, for change. change, all is one word, .org.au. Commoncause.org.au thinks another w- relevant website.
0: Yeah, so Common Cause do great work on talking about values and how to engage people on mm. their core values. Um, and that's another great way to engage people
2: on climate change. Imogen, thanks heaps for your time today, um, especially the, the battles with your throat. It's uh, been really good talking to you.
0: Yeah, thanks. thanks very much for having me. It's a
2: pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, you can go to www.bze.org.au and click on podcasts. And you can also find us on Twitter with app BZE Tech Show. Thank you for listening. We'll see you all again next week. And don't forget to listen to our sister program Monday afternoons at 5pm on 3CR.
1: You've
0: been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge.
1: A regenerative suspension.
0: There will be a growing... Demand for industrial photovoltaics. Time hydro, Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational.
2: Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level.